You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 323, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Interdisciplinary Astronomy, 18 Lectures, translated by Frederick Amrine. This is Lecture 3, given on January 3rd, 1921. I have brought to your notice, on the one hand, how problematical it is to correlate celestial phenomena solely in mathematical and geometrical terms. This is already being recognized on all sides. Only intellectual laggards still maintain that the worldview of Copernicus and Galileo represents an outright reality. Increasingly we hear the voices of those who find this way of thinking about the celestial phenomena useful and practical, no doubt, for purposes of calculation, but who emphasize at the same time that it represents only one of a number of different conceivable models. And today there are even thinkers such as Ernst Mach, for example, who say, in the last resort one can uphold the Ptolemaic just as well as the Copernican paradigm. And in principle some third system could also be devised. These are just practical ways of correlating the observed facts. The entire field should now be confronted with a far freer kind of outlook. Hence you see that the problematical nature of the celestial charts, described but a short time ago as mappings of the real facts, is more or less conceded now in the widest circles. On the other hand, an escape from the manifest problems and uncertainties of this realm can be found only through views such as those brought forward in outline yesterday, views which no longer remove us as human beings from the whole cosmic context, but on the contrary, incorporate us into it. We have to recognize via processes within the human constitution itself just how those processes are related to solar phenomena, lunar phenomena, and terrestrial phenomena. We have to take as a starting point all that goes on within ourselves as human beings in order to find our way to what is going on out there in the cosmos, which is, in some sense, the cause of the processes within the human being. Of course, a path like this can be taken only from the standpoint of spiritual science. Precisely when we try to bring astronomy into connection with the most varied spheres of life, we'll find that we are being driven by astronomy itself into the views of spiritual science. Bear in mind that the visible celestial phenomena, perceptible to our senses and also to senses armed with instruments, appear at first to be a kind of manifestation of something that obtains outside us as human beings. We confront and, as it were, arrest with our senses whatever approaches us and then our consciousness brings it to mind within our paradigm. But the impulses streaming toward us from all sides, 
certainly don't come to a standstill at the senses. Everything that goes on without being held up by our senses and brought into consciousness, everything that lives in the celestial influences that stream toward us from all sides, has to be sought within our bodily organism. The organism must reflect it all somehow, and it does this in fact, albeit by means of processes that remain unconscious and subconscious. Those processes need to be raised up into consciousness in more complicated ways. Now, let's pursue in a certain direction what we began yesterday. Conventional geology and mineralogy are focused on a mere abstraction from our earthly world. We might go so far as to say that geology and mineralogy describe things that don't even exist. Those descriptions of the earthly realm have only been excised from a much greater and more comprehensive reality. It's true that the earth consists of minerals and that it has evolved within the mineral sphere. It's true that there are forces within the earth by virtue of which it expels the minerals. And yet it's equally true that everything living in plants, animals, and physical human beings also belongs to the earth. We see the earth in its totality only when we don't simply cast aside what's living within plants, animals, and human beings in order to focus on the abstraction in quotes, mineral earth. We see it holistically only when we contemplate the earth in a way that holds all its dimensions in consciousness. That means remaining constantly aware that the living beings and entities that are summoned up out of the earth are also part and parcel of the whole. Of all that belongs to the earth in this way, let's begin with the vegetal kingdom. We shall draw upon it so that we can see the transition to what meets us in the human constitution. Whereas, to a certain extent, the mineral kingdom carries on a self-contained, independent earthly existence and is only related to the cosmos outside the earth in such a way as is shown, for example, in the changing of water into ice in winter, the vegetal kingdom retains a much more intimate connection with the cosmic surroundings of the earth, with all that penetrates into the earth from the cosmos. Through the vegetal world, the life of the earth opens itself up, as it were, to the whole universe. And in those geographical regions, where, during a certain season, there is an especially intensive reciprocal interaction between the earth and the sun, the life of the plants opens right up. It opens right up precisely because there is a reciprocal interaction between the earth and the cosmos. We have to pay heed to a phenomenon like this because it will lead us into the realm of astronomy, not only quantitatively but also qualitatively. We have to be able to derive our ideas from things like this, even as the astronomers of our time derive their ideas from angles, parallaxes, and so on. Then we shall say to ourselves, for example, the vegetation covering a given region of the earth is a kind of sense organ, sensitive to all that's revealed to the earth by the cosmos. 
during seasons when the interplay between a portion of the Earth's surface and the universe is more intense, it's as though a human being were opening her eyes to the outer world to receive sensory impressions. And when the interplay between the Earth and the cosmos is less intense, the consequent decline and inward closure of the vegetation is like a closing of our eyes to the cosmos. It's more than just a hackneyed metaphor to say that through its vegetation a given territory opens its eyes to the universe in spring and summer and shuts its eyes in autumn and winter. Just as by opening and closing our eyes we converse with the outer world in a way, it must be that the earth is seeking insight into the cosmos by opening and closing its eyes through its vegetation. Let's look more closely at this whole matter. Let's consider the difference between the vegetation of a given region that's exposed to what we might call the most vivid interplay with the life of the sun, for example, and what we note when we turn our attention to the vegetation that arises when this region isn't exposed to the life of the sun. Needless to say, the winter doesn't interrupt the vegetative life of the earth. Plant life continues throughout the winter, of course, but it expresses itself in quite another way than when exposed to the intensive working of the sun's rays, or, shall we say, of the cosmos. Under the influence of the life of the sun, the earth's plant life shoots up into form. The leaves unfold and grow more complex. Flowers develop. But when this is followed by the closing of its eyes to the cosmos, so to speak, vegetative life withdraws back into itself, into the seed. Withdrawing from the outer world, it no longer shoots into outward form. It concentrates into a point. It becomes centered in itself. Here we have a polar opposition that we can invoke as a virtual law of nature. We can say, the interplay between earthly and solar life reveals itself in the earth's vegetation such that under the solar influence, plant life shoots outward into form, whereas under the influence of earthly life, it contracts into a point, becoming a seed or germ. You see, in all this there is something expansive and something that centers itself. Here we begin to read spatial relationships through direct apprehension of their qualities. This is the very thing that we have to cultivate in the development of our ideas if we want to attain fruitful perspectives within this realm. And now we pass from the life of plants to the life of human beings. Naturally, what comes to expression in the life of plants will find expression in our human constitution as well. In what way will it do so? What we somehow perceive so outwardly and evidently in the life of plants, what we have visibly before our eyes if we are attentive to the qualitative aspect, this is something we can recognize as present in the human constitution, properly speaking, only in the first years of childhood. So let's trace the interaction between solar and terrestrial life during our childhood development. 
the little child already opens its senses to receive the impressions of the outer world. In doing so, the child is really opening up to receive solar life. You need to shift your perspective only slightly to recognize that what pours in upon our senses is inherently connected with what is brought about in the terrestrial sphere by the cosmos. You can reflect upon the special case of light. When light and darkness succeed each other in the alternation of day and night, impressions are made upon our eyes by day and no impressions are made by night. But you can also apply this to other perceptions, though it's more difficult to make it clear. Then you'll say that a certain effect of the daily alternations, solar and earthly, expresses itself in the inner life of our souls. It's the rhythm of the day that gives rise to the activity of the soul. What the sun brings to the earth comes to expression initially in the life of the human soul. But if we follow the growth of the child, particularly until the seventh year, the change of teeth, and go into all the details, we find that indeed every year, but especially in the first years of the child's development, less and less the older the child becomes, it's plainly perceptible that the changing seasons, year by year, have as much significance for human growth as for the sprouting and wilting of the vegetation. If we want to depict schematically what actually happens, if, for example, we study carefully and intelligently the development of the human brain in the earliest stages from year to year, we'll find the following, drawn schematically. Here we have roughly the human skull enclosing the brain, see figure 1. It transforms itself, and we can follow how the skull morphs in accordance with the changing seasons. Something that works formatively and creatively upon the human head, molding it from outside in a corporeal physical sense, we find this to be intimately connected with the forces interacting between the earth and the sun in the course of the year. In the diurnal rhythm we find what enters through the senses and achieves independence from the processes of growth. We find what's active within us as soul and spirit. We see how what takes place within us by virtue of the sun's activity in the diurnal rhythm has an inner effect that frees itself from the external world and becomes the inner faculties of soul and spirit. We see what the child learns, what it assimilates through observation, what unfolds within its inner life. And then we see how in a fundamentally different tempo, coming from a fundamentally different direction, the brain forms itself differentiates itself, grows. That's the other effect, the annual effect of the solar forces. We don't want to say anything yet about the changes occurring in the universe between sun and earth. For now, let's consider solely the manifestations within the human constitution itself that are united with certain changes in solar and terrestrial life. We consider the day and find that the life of the human soul and spirit is intimately connected with the course of the sun. 
we consider the change of seasons in the course of the year and find that our bodily growth, our physical corporeal life, is also intimately connected with the course of the sun. Then we'll conclude that the change taking place between earth and sun every 24 hours has certain effects on our human spirit and soul. What happens between earth and sun in the course of the year exerts certain effects upon our physical constitution. We'll have to connect these effects with others and thereby arrive at a paradigm which can no longer be deceptive. It speaks to us of real processes within ourselves. And it's no longer dependent on illusory sensory impressions or the like. You see, we have to work our way gradually toward a secure foundation for our astronomical paradigm. Our starting point can only be what appears in and through our own human nature. So, we can say the day is something within our human relationship to the cosmos that expresses itself in the form of soul and spirit. The year is something within our human relationship to the cosmos that expresses itself in the life of the human physical body, as, for example, in the phenomena of growth, and so on. Now, let's consider another complex of phenomena, the one to which I referred yesterday. Human reproduction has to be understood in the context of certain ideas referring to the life of the cosmos. We indicated yesterday that the female organism shows in a striking manner how the monthly functions connected with sexuality, though not, to be sure, coinciding with the moon's phases, are nevertheless a reflection of them in their temporal rhythm. The process rests itself free from the cosmos, as it were, but it still reflects the cosmic lunar processes in its periodicity. We have here an indication of inner processes in the human organism that we can study only if we turn our attention to more commonplace phenomena, such as may render these remoter phenomena more comprehensible. I want to show you that there is something in the life of the soul that actually reproduces in miniature the organic processes to which we've just alluded. Let's say we have an outer experience that engages our senses and our intellect, perhaps our feelings as well, and so forth. We retain a memory of this experience. This recollection, this retention of the experience, makes it possible for an image of the experience to emerge again at a later time. Anyone who considers these facts, not on the basis of fanciful theories, but with a kind of sound observation that takes intensities into consideration, will have to admit that in all that arises within us by way of memory, our physical bodily organization plays a part. The remembering itself is no doubt an event in the life of soul, but it needs the resistance and hence the support of the physical body in order to come into being. The activity of remembering is very much a function of interactions with bodily processes, although this has yet to be investigated sufficiently by external science. 
Comparing what occurs in the female organism in the menstrual cycle, it occurs in the male organism too, only it's more withdrawn. It can be observed more in the male etheric organism, and this is not usually done, comparing this with what happens in ordinary experience when we remember something, we'll certainly find a difference. Yet if we draw the process into our consciousness with sound introspection, we can only conclude that the activity of remembering this event in the soul that rises out of the physical organism is similar to what takes place in the menstrual cycle of the female organism. The only difference is that it happens on a small scale and that it has been drawn into the realm of the soul, less impressed upon the body. From this point of view, it becomes possible to say to oneself, it is by individuating, by separating ourselves from the cosmos, that we, as humans, develop the capacity to remember. On the other hand, by remaining within the cosmos, by further developing our unconscious functions, something in the nature of an empathy with the cosmos arises. We share an experience with something related to the lunar processes in the cosmos. Just as a past experience remains in our memory, this experience persists and later it emerges like a kind of recollection as an inner formative process that has been drawn into the body and has become organic. There is no other way to arrive at an understanding of these matters than by proceeding thus from the simple to the complex, to the composite. It isn't necessary for a recollection to coincide with a fresh outer experience. In the same way, it isn't necessary for a causal relationship that arises in the female organism as a sort of memory of an earlier cosmic connection between the human organism and the phases of the moon to coincide temporally with those phases. Nevertheless, it's connected with the moon's phases no less fundamentally than is the recollection of an earlier experience with the experience itself. Here, then, we have an activity in the human organism, more on the side of soul and spirit, and yet not unlike the effects of influences due originally to the moon, now inserted into the flow of time. For the organic periodicity of which we have been speaking embraces about 28 days, as you know. Now take the following. If we consider the diurnal influence of the sun we find an inner activity of soul and spirit. If we consider the annual influence of the sun, then we find laws of growth belonging to the outer physical body. Thus we can say with regard to the sun's influence on terrestrial life, number one, soul and spirit, day. Number two, physical bodily nature, year. We pass on to consider the lunar effects, the life of the moon. What I have just described as taking place in a rhythm of 28 days belongs indeed to the soul and spirit. It's just that it has impressed itself deeply into the body. Physiologically, there is really no difference, in a more refined sense, between what takes place in the body on the arising of a memory 
with respect to the event to which the memory refers and what takes place in the menstrual cycle of the female body with respect to what the female organism experienced long ago in conjunction with the phases of the moon. Only the latter is a stronger, a more intensive experience, an inner experience pressed more intensively into the body. Thus, for the moon's influence on terrestrial life, number one, soul and spirit, 28-day activity. Now, let's seek the corresponding phenomena for the physical body. What must they be? You can deduce it yourselves. We will have bodily physical effects with a 28-year period. Just as a day here, above, corresponds to a year, so we have to have 28 years here. Number two, physical bodily nature, 28-year activity. All you need is to remember that 28 years is the period we need to grow into full inner maturity. That's when the curve of our growth stops ascending. Just as the sun works upon us from outside over the course of a year, exerts an annual effect, in order to complete in us an outward process corresponding to the diurnal process within our inner life of soul and spirit, there is likewise something in the cosmos with a 28-year periodicity that's organizing us from without, just as the female human being is organized inwardly in a sort of 28-day rhythm. Parenthesis, in the female, it's more obvious than in the male, for in the male the corresponding daily rhythm is more withdrawn into the etheric. Close parenthesis. Here, then, a 28-day period impresses itself inwardly in the realm of the soul and spirit. And we can say, just as the daily activity of the sun is related to the annual activity of the sun in regard to human beings, so is the 28-day lunar cycle related to the 28-year lunar cycle with respect to our human constitution as a whole. Otherwise, it relates more to the human head. Footnote, the pronoun S is ambiguous here, but presumably it refers to the 28-day lunar cycle. End of footnote. You see how we integrate our human nature into the cosmos as a whole, right into the cosmos. We cease speaking of the sun and the moon merely as if we stood isolated here on earth and only looked out at them with our eyes or with our telescopes. We speak of sun and moon as of something intimately united with our very life. And we perceive the connection in the special configurations of our life in time. Until we once again integrate human beings into the picture of the doings of sun and moon, we won't have evolved a firm foundation for a true astronomy. So you see, this is how a new science of astronomy must be erected upon a spiritual scientific foundation. It has to be derived from a more intimate knowledge of our own human nature. We will be able to make sense of what is taught by the external astronomy of today only when we view it as ultimately founded upon our own human nature. 
taking the human constitution as the fundamental precondition, we'll then be able to make sense of what modern astronomy describes so schematically, and we'll also be able to make substantive corrections to this external astronomy. So then, what follows from all this? It follows that in these processes, no matter for the moment what the underlying basis of them is, a universal life is really expressing itself. And no matter whether, we'll speak about this later, no matter whether the diurnal and annual rotations of the earth underlie what I have here described as solar life with respect to the daily experiences of the soul and spirit, no matter whether the physical processes of the body underlie our inner experience of annual rhythms, and no matter whether the movements of the moon have been described correctly by modern astronomy or something very different is needed. We'll never reach an understanding of it by merely rehearsing the well-known paradigm that we were taught in school. Rather, we have to understand what's expressing itself here as a continuing, enduring life, a universal life that requires more than just setting forth one schema after another. Now let's approach this matter from another angle. Now let's take up the astronomical ideas of a personality who had still retained very much from the past. We don't want to return to the older ideas. We want only to work out of new ideas. This personality, however, still retained many older ideas that were filled with qualities. I'm talking about Kepler. Modern astronomy has become more and more quantitative and it would be a delusion to look at astrophysics as the entry of a qualitative element into astronomy. Astrophysics is part of the same quantitative paradigm. But shining through Kepler's works, there's still an awareness of a universal life. In him there still persisted an awareness that behind all that's manifest to ordinary astronomical observation there ultimately stands something like the gesture of a life expressing itself. If we encounter someone and see her move a hand or an arm, we don't just start calculating the mechanics of the movement, right? We recognize it as the outer revelation of an inner life of soul and spirit. We understand as an expressive gesture something that we might otherwise have viewed from a purely spatial mathematical point of view. The further back we go in the history of astronomy, the more we find peoples who were conscious that the images of the path of the sun or of the stars they cherished were not merely passive pictures of indifferent events, but rather gestures of life and being. It's quite easy to discern in ancient times this sense of the gesture-like nature of the movements of the heavenly bodies. When my hand moves through the air, I don't merely calculate its path. Rather, I see an expression of the soul. In the same way, ancient observers saw in the path of the moon an expression of something that felt like the expression of a soul. All the movements of the heavenly bodies, they saw a soul expressing something. They pictured it something like this. If I could hold a screen here, 
so that only my hand were visible. My hand would make a movement that's inexplicable in itself because I'm standing behind the screen and you're seeing only my hand. In roughly the same way the ancients imagined that the movement of the moon up in the sky was only the outer expression, a sort of astronomical extremity, and that what stood behind it was really doing the acting. So too in earlier times. People didn't speak of isolated heavenly bodies of the planets. They spoke of planetary spheres. They spoke of the several spheres belonging to the heavenly bodies. Thus they distinguished the sphere of the moon, the sphere of Mercury, the sphere of Venus, the sphere of the sun, the sphere of Mars, the sphere of Jupiter, the sphere of Saturn, and then the eighth sphere, the heaven of fixed stars. They distinguished these eight spheres and they saw in them something that expressed itself in outer gestures so that a certain sphere expressed itself by lighting up now here, now there, and so on. In the case of the moon, for instance, it was the sphere of the moon that was felt to be real. The moon itself was not a separate entity, but rather only the gesture made by the same entity. Where the moon appeared, the sphere of the moon was felt to be making a specific gesture. I'm mentioning this only to show you the living nature of the older conceptions. But it was precisely Kepler who still retained in his whole consciousness a feeling of this universal life in space. Only on this account was he able to draw up his three famous laws. For modern astronomy, Kepler's famous three laws are purely of a quantitative nature to be regarded simply from the aspect of spatial and temporal concepts. For someone like Kepler, who still worked out of living ideas, this was not the case. Now, let's call to mind these Keplerian laws. They are the first law. The planets move in ellipses around the central body, which is situated in one of the foci of the ellipse. The second law, the radius vector of a planet, sweeps out equal sectors, equal areas, over equal periods of time. The third law, the squares of the periods of revolution of the different planets are proportional to the cubes of the semi-major axes. Now, as we said, in the modern purely quantitative paradigm, these laws are also purely quantitative. But for someone like Kepler, the very expression in quotes elliptical and the corresponding curve signified a vitality greater than a circle's. When something moves elliptically, it's livelier than something that merely moves in a circle because it has to employ inner impulses in order to alter the radius. When something simply moves in a circle, it doesn't need to do anything to alter the radius. A more intense inner life has to be employed when the radius vector needs to be continually altered. In making the simple statement, quote, the planets move in ellipses around the central body and the central body is not in the midpoint, but in one of the foci of the ellipse, close quote, what's implicitly conceded is that we're dealing with something that's more alive than would be the case with something moving in a circle. 
Further, quote, the radius vectors sweep out equal sectors in equal periods of time. Close quote. Here we see the transition from the line to the surface to the plane. Please note that carefully. Inasmuch as it's only the ellipse that is described initially, we remain within the line, within the curve. But when we're directed to the path that the radius vector sweeps out, we're led to the surface, the area. A substantially more intensive relation is revealed for the planetary movement. When the planet, in quotes, rolls along, so to speak, it's not only expressing something within itself, it drags its tail along behind it, so to speak. The whole area that the radius vector sweeps out belongs to it spiritually. Recall that in equal periods of time, equal areas are swept. What is the particular characteristic, the quality of planetary movement that Kepler's second law expresses? And then it's the third law, relating as it does to the life that unfolds among the various planets. It's this third law that complicates the picture greatly. Quote, the squares of the periods of revolution of the planets are proportional to the cubes of the semi-major axes, close quote, or of the mean distance from the central body. This law, you see, contains a great deal if you still understand it in Kepler's living way. Newton then killed the law. He did this in an extraordinarily simple fashion. Take Kepler's third law. You can write it thus. T sub 1 squared colon T sub 2 squared equals R sub 1 cubed colon R sub 2 cubed. Readers aside, that can be read as T sub 1 squared is to T sub 2 squared as R sub 1 cubed is to R sub 2 cubed. End of readers aside. Steiner again. Or expressed differently, here's another one, T sub 1 squared over R sub 1 colon T sub 2 squared over R sub 2 equals R sub 1 squared colon r sub 2 squared. Now, write it in a somewhat different form. Express it thus. 1 over r sub 1 squared colon 1 over r sub 2 squared equals r sub 1 over t sub 1 squared colon r sub 2 over t sub 2 squared. Parenthesis, of course, I also could have expressed it in the reverse order. Close parenthesis. What do we have on the left-hand side of the equation here in the left-hand ratio? Nothing other than what's expressed by one half of Newton's law. And on the other side, the other half, the forces of Newton's law. All you need to do is to change the expression of Kepler's law in this way, and then you can say, quote, the forces of attraction are inversely proportional to the squares of the distances. Close quote. Here you have the Newtonian law of gravity deduced from Kepler's law. The force of gravity between the planets, the celestial bodies, is in inverse proportion 
to the squares of their distances apart. It's nothing other than the killing of Kepler's third law. That's what it amounts to in principle. But now take hold of the matter in a living way. Don't set before yourself the dead product, quote, force of gravity, close quote. Quote, the forces of attraction decrease with the squares of the distances, close quote. But take what's still living in Kepler's formulation, the squares of the periods of time. Fill out the caput mortuum of the Newtonian force of attraction, which is a mere external concept, with what's implied in the square of the period of time. And you'll fill the Newtonian concept, which is really the corpse of an idea, with inner life. For whatever has to do with time is filled with inner life. And here you have before you not only time in its simple unfolding, you have time to the second power, time squared. We'll have to come back to what it means to speak of time squared. But for now you can imagine that to speak of time to the second power is to speak of something of an inward nature. And it is indeed time that actually depicts the events unfolding in the human soul. The point really is that we should look right through this dead concept of the Newtonian force of attraction to what suddenly darts into the center, bringing time into it, and thereby importing an element of inner life. Now, let's look at the matter from another point of view. Notice that the first law also refers to the earth in a Keplerian sense. Not only does the earth describe an ellipse, but because you are on the earth, you also describe an ellipse together with it. What takes place outwardly is an inner process within you. Thus the emergence of the ellipse from the circle in the living way in which Kepler still conceived it corresponds to a process in your own inner being. And inasmuch as you move in the line that is formed by the radius vector sweeping out equal sectors over equal times, it is you who continually relate yourself to the central body, placing yourself in relation to your own sun. You, together with the curve, are describing a path in time along which you are in continual relation to the sun. If I may put it a bit Anthropomorphically, you constantly have to take care that you don't go into a skid, that you don't go too fast, that your radius vector doesn't sweep out too great an area. This outer point that moves in the ellipse has to stand continuously in the right relationship to the sun. There you have the movement you yourselves make, characterized as a pure line in space. The relation to the sun is characterized in the second law. And if we pass on to the third law, you have an inner experience of the relation to the other planets, your own living connection with the other planets. This living connection is simply expressed in Kepler's third law. Thus we not only have to find, within our own human constitution, processes that lead us out again into the cosmos, 
If we interpret rightly the mathematical symbols presented to us by the cosmic processes, we also turn into an inner experience what is apparently external and quantitative. For the cosmic mathematics indwells us as human beings. As human beings, we dwell within the living mathematics. We'll have more to say about this tomorrow. The end of Lecture 3